Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have a very special guest with us. Uh, the Beast in the Garden. The author is David Barron. When mountain lions began appearing in Boulder, Colorado, residents cheered the news, at least some of them. But as the lions feasted on pets and began to endanger humans, political battles began until tragedy brought the town together. David Barron's The Beast in the Garden is, according to Goodreads.com, a book about the future of our nation, where suburban sprawl and wildlife protection laws are pushing people and wild animals into uncomfortable, sometimes deadly, proximity. And these issues, uh, David Barron, applicable to... Uh, uh, just about anywhere in the United States, as as mountain lions apparently are spreading east. That's right. I mean, lions are still primarily a western species found from the Rocky Mountains west, some of them also into the Black Hills of South Dakota. But a lot of people don't realize that in historical times, there were mountain lions across the entire United States, New England, the southeast. We still have a few in Florida where they're called Florida panthers. But they are uh, they were pretty much wiped out in the east. They are slowly moving back across the plains and uh, showing up, for instance, last year in Connecticut. Yeah, you had an op-ed piece about that, the cougar behind your trash can. We'll talk a little bit about that. Just an amazing journey, 1,500 miles. Oh, journey. this one cougar, yeah, it wandered from the Black Hills of South Dakota to Greenwich, Connecticut. And it, it was seen a few times, but for the most part, it made that journey, that journey unseen. They are such elusive, secretive creatures. I mean, amazing. It crossed highways, crossed rivers. And met a bad end, in the, the hood of a or a front front end of an SUV. Correct. It was struck by a car on uh, on a highway in Connecticut. But gosh, it made it all that way without yeah. anything bad happening. And and you're saying if they're you know that one cougar probably means other cougars may follow to Connecticut. I think that they will. I they there was I mean there it's amazing what's been happening with cougars the last ten years. There was one I think three or four years ago that showed up in downtown Chicago, and that one also was traced back to the Black Hills. The Black Hills population seems to be a feeder population now for those moving east. Hmm. Should mention um, David Barron, a former reporter for National Public Radio. Right. I used to work for All Things Considered in Morning Edition. These days I work for a public radio program called The World, which I know you guys don't air, but mm. one of your competitors does. Indeed. Uh, and uh, I, I'm the health and science editor for that show. And living in Boulder, Colorado. Correct. But you did not live in Boulder at the time of uh, the, these couple of years, few years of, of uh, height of the mountain lions in Boulder, Colorado. Exactly. So as you know from having read the book, I, I mean, I've written it in the style of a novel. It is, it is nonfiction. I stand by every, every word in the book as true. Uh, but it tells the story of what happened along the front range of Colorado around Boulder back in the late 80s and early 90s. And I had to piece together basically this three-year period um, a decade later when I learned about the story and decided to write about it. And this is not only about specific people and their encounters with mountain lions. It's about us all, especially those communities which are on the wildland-urban interface. Yeah, exactly. In fact, the, uh, the, the title of the book, it was changed from when it was in hardcover to, to paperback. But in the hardcover, it, it was always called The Beast in the Garden. But the subtitle is A Modern Parable of Man and Nature. And, mm -hmm. and I really saw it as a kind of parable. It's a small story that tells a large and universal tale. Mm -hmm. So even though it's the story of Boulder, Colorado, and it's the story of mountain lions, you could take the same story and apply it to just about anywhere in this country and to many other species. What's mm -hmm. happening with deer, raccoons, black bears, um, all these different species that are adapting to suburban life, changing their behavior as they move into our suburbs, and our suburbs move into their habitat. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing increasing conflict between people and wild animals. 
animals. Our guest is David Barron, author of The Beast in the Garden. Perhaps you could tell us uh, the, the opening scenes in the book, very harrowing. This is kind of the climax of of uh, mountain lions uh, coming into Boulder, increasingly bold. Some wildlife experts uh, said that this could never happen. Uh, this was a an adult young man, 18 years old, killed by a mountain lion. Killed, and I, I don't mean to get too graphic here, but eaten. And and I, uh, the reason I say that is because uh, he was treated like prey. This the 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 young man who was killed, Scott Lancaster, 18 years old, a senior at Clear Creek High School in Idaho Springs, Colorado, which is not very far from Boulder. He was out jogging behind his high school when he was attacked and killed and partially consumed. And the the remarkable thing is until that time, there had not been, in a 100 years in all of North America, there had not been an adult human being killed by a mountain lion. The one exception was a, a woman in Northern California who was attacked by a rabid lion and died of rabies. But what happened to Scott was very different. He was attacked by a healthy lion that saw him as prey. Um, it was completely shocking because mountain lions were thought to be virtually harmless, and the only people who had anything to worry about were little kids uh, from a healthy lion. And on top of that, lions were said to be nocturnal. They were said to be a wilderness species that would avoid humans and human habitation. This attack happened in the middle of the day or just afternoon right on the edge of a small Rocky Mountain city in view of Interstate 70 behind a high school. So much about this attack was unprecedented. And so I really I open the book, as you say, with, in essence, the climax. And then the rest of the book backs up in time mm-hmm. to try to tell the story of what may have led to this unprecedented attack, which was us unprecedented at the time. Unfortunately, it has since been repeated. Mm-hmm. Not a common occurrence, but we have seen uh, you know, quite a few people killed, including adults, by healthy lions across the West since that death in 1991. You take care to point out that this you're you're not saying we should all run for the hills. No. And you're more likely to be killed by, say, a deer with the automobile deer. You're more likely encounters. to be killed by mosquitoes. Right. Consider West Nile virus. Yeah, but this is increasing. This is what you're saying. It is increasing, and I don't. Again, I too, I don't want to blow this out of proportion. I'm not looking to scare people about mountain lions, but I am hoping to instill a healthy respect for them because mm-hmm. I think. I think we kind of went, at least in Boulder, I think we went too far the other way. So the, for most of American history, mountain lions were considered completely worthless creatures. I mean, truly, we tried to exterminate them. We had bounties on their heads. Uh, and we successfully exterminated them in the eastern two-thirds of the country. Back in the 1960s, attitudes started to change when we realized that large predators play an important role in ecosystems. You need to have large predators around to help protect forests from overpopulation of deer. And there was a feeling that, you know, there's there's beauty in these creatures, too, and they have a right to exist. And so in the 60s, we started to protect them and we brought them back. Uh, what Boulder tried was this attitude of, wow, let's just completely leave them alone. Let's let's coexist with them, in, mm. uh, which means let them have free run of the place. Mm. And that got a little too far out of hand the other way. I think mm-hmm. we need to have healthy respect for making sure that we don't do things that encourage, quote, bad behavior on the part of mountain lions and dealing with individual lions that may pose a problem. Mm. I want to backtrack a little bit to uh, to Scott Lancaster's death. Just a a very poignant scene um, of of Scott Lancaster jogging past the open window of the classroom, kind of mugging for his his classmates. He's never seen again. And originally this was thought maybe this was a a bizarre murder. Well, remember, this was... 
mountain lions were not considered uh, dangerous animals, certainly for an 18-year-old young man. It was not, this was not even on the list of possible reasons why Scott Lancaster went missing. So it was, uh, as you say, he, was, he would jog this loop around his high school pretty much every day, and he, he made one loop, came back around, went past the window of uh, a classroom, um, kind of waved at his friends, went around again, and they, they didn't see him come back. So uh, people knew that he had been on his jog. No one remembered seeing him after that. Uh, the police figured he probably had run away. Um, his parents just didn't think that that was a, a reasonable conclusion. Um, but even when it took two days before his body was found, the lion had hit it. I mean, that's what lions mm-hmm. do. They hide their cache of prey. Um, but when his body was found, and even when a lion was seen by his body, the people who found him assumed he had been murdered and that this lion just showed up on scene. It, it took a while before they connected the two and thought, mm-hmm. wait a minute, we think the lion, uh, that this lion did it. And it was clear, it, it eventually it became, there was no question that the lion did kill him. Mm. And human remains found in the stomach of the, yeah, of the lion. Yeah, unfortunately, correct. Con- conclusive, conclusive evidence uh, there. Uh, maybe we could go back to the uh, to the beginning. Uh, tell us about Boulder in that in that era, eighties, eighties, nineties. Right. Well, I mean, you know, Boulder is kind of known through the well. Boulder, like Logan, is a college town. Boulder is a particularly liberal uh, little city in the American West, um, uh, known for its hippies for a long time, and um, uh, very, very much uh, in ter- very much in favor of environmental protection. Boulder was a pioneer in the protection of open space. Boulder has bought up tens of thousands of acres of former ranch land and turned it into uh, essentially wildlife refuge that now circles the city. And that's part of what I believe led to Scott Lancaster's death, that Boulder had created this unnatural environment of having essentially these animals that were invited into the open space around town, eventually invited into town. The deer came in to eat gardens, and mm. no, there was no hunting on the open space land, so the deer kept populating. The deer moved into town. The lions came back. The lions moved into town. And Boulder, because it was very much in favor of animal protection and didn't want these animals harmed, even when the lions moved in, there was very much an attitude of, Let's leave the lions alone. This is wonderful news to have the lions here. And it, mm-hmm. and it is in many ways. But again, I think the hands-off attitude went a bit too far. Mm-hmm. So uh, Boulder, more so than some communities, maybe it's a little further on the scale. You know, a lot of communities try to have the open space and try to try to you know invite uh, some wildlife in. But maybe they went further than, than some cities. So they got this deer population that uh, essentially was an urban population and we're familiar with this in in Logan and some a lot of areas in Utah where you have herds that are born and raised and know nothing but the town exactly and they change their behavior i mean that's part of what was documented it, you know the the book really tells the story primarily of two scientists in Boulder who were studying this change in behavior of lions and uh, I mentioned that Scott Lancaster was killed in the middle of the day, which was quite remarkable because lions were thought to be active mostly at dusk and dawn or in the nighttime. But in Boulder, what happened with the deer, deer normally are active at night or dusk and dawn. But in Boulder, these urban deer, they they had nothing to worry about. They had plenty to eat. People weren't shooting them. The deer changed their behavior. The deer became more active in the daytime. The lions seemed to shift their behavior in response. So the lions were hunting more in the daytime. So uh, 
early on, it was this sort of general, uh, there probably were some dissenters, but generally people uh, were glad to see the the lions arrive? Well, I mean, there definitely were people worried about their kids. Um, But it was, it really, what happened at that time, it took the state wildlife agency, the Division of Wildlife, uh, by surprise. Because, you know, most state wildlife agencies really are hunting and fishing agencies. They manage wildlife for hunting, and they use hunting to manage wildlife. That That's fine in a rural area, but what do you do when you have a large predator in the suburbs? Mm. Uh, you're not going to run hounds through the suburbs to, to hunt a lion. So the, the Division of Wildlife really didn't know what to do. They you had people saying, we're not so sure we want, some of the people saying, we're not so sure we want these lions around. And the Division of Wildlife didn't want to do anything. They didn't know what to do. And you had a lot of animal rights activists who didn't want the animals harmed. So it was, things really became polarized and there was kind of a stalemate for a while. Hmm. We're talking with David Barron, who's author of The Beast in the Garden. It's a book about the arrival of mountain lions in uh, in Boulder, the suburbs, and then right downtown. And uh, what do you do about these mountain lions? Uh, it's also a, a parable. It's a subtitle of the book, original subtitle of the book, about man and nature. And what do we do and what should we do in these areas where increasingly we are coexisting due to our own uh, choices uh, with um, species that normally we wouldn't coexist with. What do we do about that? Many questions, of course, to come. We'll take a short break here and be back with David Barron with Beast in the Garden. Back after break. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, offering through this Saturday a Valentine menu of hand-decorated sugar cookies, chocolate-dipped pommiers, an artisan Italian chocolate bread, and white chocolate mousse cake. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have uh, with us uh, an opportunity to talk with David Barron, uh, who's a former reporter for National Public Radio, currently um, health and science editor for The World. And uh, his book is The Beast in the Garden, the true story of a predator's deadly return to suburban America. Uh, so, David Barron, uh, the, the, the cougars, the mountain lions have reappeared, I guess, increasingly bold and, and increasingly... In downtown Boulder, right? Uh, we, you know, it's funny. These these problems with lions seem to come in waves. We, uh, the pro- dur- during the period I write about in the book, in the late eighties and early nineties, the lions just seemed to be showing up everywhere and clearly stalked some people, chased a woman up a tree. Um, eventually, Scott Lancaster was killed. Um, a few years ago in Boulder, we had another period where um, there was a young boy who was attacked and severely injured. He survived. Um, we've had a lot of dogs taken, um, people concerned again. I, I, it's hard to know why they come in waves. I've seen this in other places too. Missoula, Montana, back in the late 90s, had a whole bunch of problems. Um, Southern California, Orange County, has had uh, several serious attacks and one death in the last several years. Um, and it's hard to know what's going on. I think part of it is human behavior. I think we, I think we are inviting the lions in, teaching them some bad behaviors. I also think it may take a few bad actors. You know, lions, like people, have very different personalities, and you may have a few in a, you know in a couple of litters that are particularly bold, particularly aggressive, and they just start causing a lot of a lot of mm-hmm. trouble. So, I guess what happened in the late '80s into the '90s in Boulder, 
You could say it was fairly natural, right? The uh, predators tend to sort of match up with the behavior of their prey, and so these urban deer herds were behaving differently than they would in the wild. And then maybe you start looking for other prey. I guess it started with, with pets. It started with pets, and in fact, it's it started with little dogs. There was a little... Uh, poodle mix named Fifi that famously got taken off someone's porch in Boulder. Uh, Obviously sad to see a dog go, but a lot of people made jokes about little Fifi that Mm. got snatched from a porch. Well, it wasn't quite so funny when uh, the cougars moved from tiny dogs to black Labradors and even German shepherds they were Mm. attacking. And the lions uh, were jumping six-foot fences to get into backyard dog runs to snatch meals. Uh, So there seemed to be a pretty clear escalation of the lions getting more and more bold, in essence being trained that there's food in our backyards, and they started to see dogs as food. Mm -hmm. And the more time they spent with people, the more comfortable they came with people. These two scientists that I profile felt it was just a matter of time before Mm -hmm. a human was going to get attacked. And they were, at least at the beginning, seems uh, sort of crying in the wilderness, right? They weren't weren't really, they weren't in the majority. Correct. Yeah, these two scientists, uh, they were saying quite openly, I mean, it, you know, it's, uh, some people have, have compared my book to Jaws. Um, uh, I'm fine with that comparison in some small ways, though I hope there's a lot more to learn from my book than just a piece of uh, interesting um, uh, interesting novel. But but as in the, the movie Jaws, you had uh, these two guys who were very publicly saying, um, we really think that there's a danger here and someone's going to get hurt. And the government officials were poo-pooing that. And... Um, You know, part of that was, again, up until that time, there had not been on record uh, anyone, certainly any adult, killed by a mountain lion. There were not people killed in urban or suburban areas. So, but of course, what Jim and Michael, these two scientists, were saying was, we don't think the old rules apply anymore. Mm. You know, the, the the view of mountain lion behavior that Teddy Roosevelt described or other naturalists of 100 years ago, those that, they were describing lions in a very different landscape, a landscape where mountain lions were shot at every opportunity, where their numbers were much lower, where they were not hanging out near homes because they were, or certainly not near cities because they weren't they were driven off to the wilderness. So the two scientists were saying, we think this is a new landscape. We think lions are behaving in a new way. And unfortunately, they, they turned out to be right. The, they were becoming habituated, right? Correct. This, yeah. And, and I, I guess all of the, all the scientific literature uh, would point the other direction. But these two scientists were saying, this is a change. It's actually a change in behavior. Exactly. And, you know, and here, too, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to claim that... Um, that we really know entirely what's going on. These are really secretive creatures. Um, I think I think it's pretty clear that some of them are habituating. Um, there there also seem to be plenty of lions that can live around people and don't cause problems. Uh, so I think the issue is how do we figure out which ones we have to worry about and what do we do with those individual lions that seem to be getting too comfortable with us. By the way, you, you mentioned Teddy Roosevelt. He he reappears. Uh, yeah, he's kind of a recurring character in my book. Yeah, fa- obviously a fascinating guy. But um, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, beyond being an American president, was one of the great naturalists in American history. He was a great conservationist. You know, he he's many people say he's the greatest conservationist president we've ever had. He he established the National Wildlife Refuge System. He, he created millions of acres of national forests. He believed in preserving or conserving wilderness and 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 animals, 
And yet Teddy Roosevelt had no love of lions. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt believed lions and wolves should just be killed at every opportunity. And that was a widely held view because there were uh, the naturalists of the day saw good animals and bad animals. And the, the, the prey species, the deer, the elk, they were the good animals. We should protect them. Of course, we should protect them. So we should go, could go kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was these evil predators that we wanted to get rid of. Mm-hmm. That was so even a great naturalist like Teddy Roosevelt really thought lions were worthless. And that attitude, as you mentioned, was very prevalent at, at the time, even up into mid-20th century, right? That uh, certain species were vermin, should be exterminated. In fact, we successfully did exterminate uh, certain species, including mountain lions in certain areas. Exactly. And it was um, until the until the 1960s, every... Well, every, I... I, I I don't know that I can back this entirely, but every state I know of at some time had a, a mountain lion bounty. In fact, I've looked in the the uh, law books uh, from colonial New England. Uh, there was a uh, mountain lion bounty in Connecticut back in the 1700s, nearly 1700s. Um, but by the, by the early 20th century, there were no lions left in the East, essentially. And in the West, every Western state had a mountain lion bounty. Colorado was the first state to lift its bounty. That was 1965. And by 1970, all the Western states had lifted the bounty. So there was there was a very rapid change in attitude. And there are still, there may be some of your listeners who still think that mountain lions are worthless. Mm-hmm. But I would say that, um, you know, as a society, we've decided generally we want them protected to some extent. Um, so in Utah and in, in every state, um, there is, except California, actually, uh, there is still lion hunting, but it's controlled with the idea that we should maintain a healthy lion population. Mm-hmm. And they do control other populations. That's that's uh, one reason why we brought back the predator species, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the predators do help keep the deer and the elk in check. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people point to what's happened in Yellowstone since the wolves have been reintroduced. And in many ways, the wolves have helped made the forests healthier because they've kept down the population of the, the ungulates that have been eating the forests. Mm-hmm. Of course, as you know, there are many ranchers who would... Uh, uh, strenuously dispute the 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 validity of bringing back the wolves. For Ab- absolutely, and um, you know I don't take a position on this. In fact, I uh, that's what I find so fascinating as a journalist. I like to explore these complicated questions. You know, it's because even even if you believe that. Uh, that lions have a right to exist and that we should keep a healthy lion population in this country, that that still leaves open many questions. Okay, so where, but does that mean we should allow lions everywhere? What if a lion shows up in New Jersey? What if a lion shows up in downtown Chicago? Do you leave it alone? I think most people would say, well, probably you shouldn't just leave a, a lion roaming the streets of Chicago, whether you think it should be tranquilized and removed or killed, we probably don't want lions in downtown Chicago. Okay, well, what about... Which, by the way, happened, right? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, so what about the suburbs? Well, maybe, maybe not. Okay, well, what about a small town outside Salt Lake City? I mean, where do you draw the line? At some point, we, you know, we probably want lions in Yellowstone. We probably don't want lions in downtown Salt Lake. Well, where's the line? Mm-hmm. And And that's where you get the interesting debates. Where is it okay to have lions or wolves and where is it not? And that's really, it's, it's a democratic decision. Hmm. If you just joined us, we're talking with David Barron, author of Beast in the Garden, 
Uh, it's a chilling tale. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette calls it a chilling cautionary tale. It certainly is that, among many other things. Uh, it talks about deeper issues that we've just been talking about. But on the surface, it's uh, kind of a Jaws-like tale of, uh, of danger in, uh, in Boulder and environs from increasingly bold mountain lions. This happening in the late 80s, early 90s. But as David Barron said, it seems to come in waves in, in towns. Mountain lions seem to be expanding uh, throughout the United States. We have David Barron with us. Uh, for the hour. And uh, David Barron, we do have an email here. I'll just uh, read this, have you respond. This is from uh, Michelle Welch. I just finished your book with our book club. We will be attending your talk tomorrow. I understand the problem and potential for Boulder's problem to spread. However, as a mother and nature lover, how do I protect myself and my children while we're out hiking? The deer trail by our house has deer carcasses regularly. Do we just stop um, being out in nature? Or do you have advice on how to handle an, an encounter? I was really upset by Andy Peterson's experience. Will a mace help or bear spray? Those are several uh, questions from Michelle um, from your book. So I guess the, the first question, um, you know, she's a mother and nature lover, wants to be out in nature with, with kids. How, what to do to take precautions? Yeah, and I, I know a lot of people say they after they read my book, they never want to go hiking again. Yeah. And I, I hope that that passes because... Uh, you wouldn't want to give up getting out and enjoying uh, the beautiful uh, natural areas you've got around here. Uh, again, I'm a hope not a hope. I hope that I'm not instilling paranoia. I hope I'm instilling some healthy respect. Um, so, what do you do to, to to stay safe? Number one, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you could carry pepper spray, you could carry a stick. That's not necessarily a bad idea. Um, the issue, though, with mountain lions is. The lion you have to worry about is not the one that you see. It's the one you don't see. They're ambush predators. And when they go after deer, they're they're looking for the deer that doesn't see them. They're hiding in the bushes, and they come out, and they attack the deer from behind. And, you know, that's what they have done to some people. Again, it's very rare. But if you truly are worried, um, the number one thing I would advise doing is not hiking alone. Um, because – and that's the advice that I take um, – I just don't go hiking by myself in lion country. Uh, I always go with a friend, at least one, and then I don't worry about it because lions, first of all, um, almost all of the fatal attacks have been on people who have been by themselves. That was true of Scott Lancaster. Um, Andy Peterson, uh, Michelle mentions him. He shows up late in the book. He survived his encounter, but he was by himself on a trail outside Denver. Um, So most attacks, most serious attacks are on people who are by themselves. If you're with someone else, uh, that other person can save your life quite mm. easily, in mm. fact. Uh, we've had uh, – because lions, unlike unlike wolves, lions don't live in packs. Lions are solitary. And if a lion gets injured when it's hunting, it's dead because mm. it can't go out and hunt food for itself. It doesn't have a pack to take care of it. So lions are looking for a quick, easy kill, and that's usually a deer, not a person. But – if they, if a lion doesn't kill instantly and and the the prey is struggling or or someone comes along uh, to come to the rescue of the person who's being attacked, the lion will give up. There was a a six year old boy in Montana who was attacked on a day, on a day camp hike um, back in the late nineties. Uh, a fifteen year old counselor saw what was happening, ran over, kicked the lion, punched the lion. The lion gave up. Mm. Uh, a few years ago in Northern California. A couple in their 60s, a man and a woman, were out hiking. The husband was attacked. The wife came along, clobbered the lion with a log. The lion gave up. So I just 
don't go by myself. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the probably the number one way to be sure that I'm safe. Mm. I was reading an, an article. In fact, it's on the Common Literature Experience uh, page on on mountain lions. Um, this expert was was saying, if if worse comes to worse, you are are attacked. Certainly, fight back. Absolutely. And uh, if you if you're an encounter, make yourself look bigger than you know the, the biggest you can. Yeah, I suppose I'm glad you brought that up because um, again, I was talking about if uh, how do you make sure that you're okay f- uh, in terms of the lion that you may not see, but people do see lions, and and what do you do if you see one? And um, so lions, when they attack, they are not. They're not attacking because they're scared of you. They're not attacking because they're protecting their young. When they attack, it's because they've decided you look like lunch. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, what you need to do is convince that cat that it should be scared of you rather the other, than mm-hmm. the other way around. That may not be so easy in the moment, but, um, but it means screaming, looking big, acting aggressive. I mean, I wouldn't charge the lion, but mm-hmm. you want to kind of look it in the eye and be mean like like you're going to cause it trouble. There was an interesting case in Colorado a few years back of a mountain biker who was biking along. A lion came up. He jumps off his bike. The, he uses the bike as a shield and the lion's swatting at the bike and he's screaming for help mm-hmm. and the lion just wouldn't back off. And uh, Then he got it in his head to change tactics. And instead of screaming for help, he started screaming at the lion. Mm. And that is what caused the lion to back down. Mm. So you want to act aggressive. Mm. Interesting. Uh, But mostly, you know, unless they've been habituated, mountain lions, uh, you know, you wouldn't see them normally. And they wouldn't attack you normally. Oh, no, of course. Unless you looked like uh, easy prey. Yeah. And so, so, you know, if you see a lion... I would say the first thing to think, if possible, is, wow, boy, am I lucky to get to see a lion because probably that lion's going to turn and run away. Mm. Now, if a lion doesn't turn and run away, and in fact, if the lion starts to come towards you, that's when I would start employing these uh, these behaviors. Um, but, um, you know, to see a lion in the wild is a very rare event. And that's mm. not because they're not out there. It's because generally they don't want to be seen. Mm-hmm. So they may be watching you even if you don't yeah. see them. Now, having done all these interviews for the book and, and, and written the book, I, I think you say, you, as you say, you don't go out alone. Do you, do you imagine lions out there? Do you, are you more scared out there? Yeah, I mean, or? I uh, you know, I spent several years writing this book and several years interviewing people who had scary encounters with lions and interviewing people who, who had loved ones killed by lions. And so I definitely made myself paranoid for a while. Um, and was looking over my shoulder whenever out on the trails. Um, again, I still take what I think are reasonable precautions, mm. um, but I, I'm not obsessed with them at this point. Mm. I think I, at this point I realize, you know, it, it's a risk. There are lots of risks we face. Lots of bad, unlikely things can happen to you when you're out hiking. This is just one of them. Mm. Uh, thanks for that question, Michelle. David Barron, author of The Beast in the Garden, is our guest, and uh, he's uh, here based on his book. It's the true story of a predator's deadly return to suburban America, talking about Boulder, Colorado. We're going to take another brief break, and uh, when we come back, we'll uh, talk about some of those uh, underlying themes in the book. I'd, I want to ask David Barron about this, this this culture, this ethic that Boulder, Colorado had of, of wanting to live in a wild space, even even while they were in, in town. And uh, 
And David Barron says you you just can't have wild places. It's it's artificial, and Boulder is an example. We'll talk about that when we come back. On From the Top, we don't just put young people on the show to hear their incredible musical performances. We celebrate the whole kid. We're all members of the Vermont Astronomical Society, and uh, we've also gotten really into building telescopes. I run cross-country, and I run track. Well, I'll eat anything as long as it's not looking at me as, and as long as it's not moving around. I believe the correct term is math stud. Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, to meet America's most outstanding young musicians on From the Top each week from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, repeated Sunday nights at 9 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're spending the hour with David Barron, who's a former NPR reporter, currently a health and science editor with The World. He lives in Boulder, Colorado. That's the town he writes about in The Beast in the Garden, the true story of a predator's deadly return to suburban America. Talk about mountain lions, their return uh, to, in fact, downtown Boulder, which uh, culminated in a, a deadly attack on a young man and uh, change the attitude of the towns uh, toward the mountain lions. It's a parable of man and nature. That's the original subtitle of the book. And these issues apply to much of America, certainly to many towns in Utah. David Byrne, I just wanted to finish up on advice about encounters with uh, this article I was reading said, certainly don't play dead. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the only, their advice was the only animal you play dead with is the grizzly bear. Correct. Yeah, I mean, and advice for the black bear has changed over the years because there was a period where it was advised you should play dead with the black bear. Now, generally, it's said you shouldn't because it's kind of difficult, certainly in the moment. You have to think about what's the motivation of the creature that's attacking you. If it's attacking you to protect its cubs or because it's worried about that you could harm it, then you do want to play dead. And generally, grizzly attacks, you would think it's kind of crazy that the grizzly would worry about you, but generally it's a get-away-from-me attack. And so once you play dead, it'll back off is Mm -hmm. the thinking. Black bears, it turns out, many of the serious attacks actually are predatory. It's very rare, but but black bears can get it in their head that a human being is prey. And and again, if if a black bear or a cougar is attacking you, because it wants to consume you, then you do not want to play dead because mm-hmm. that's what it's going mm-hmm. for and it'll keep doing it. Um, so you want to fight back with everything you can. And that story that Michelle mentioned about Andy Peterson, he fought back with everything he had and eventually he he, he stuck his thumb in the lion's eye mm-hmm. and that's what got the lion off of him. That's a very interesting story. You, uh, Of course, you talk about what happened afterwards. Yeah. Uh, it was a very traumatic experience, obviously. Um, he through this experience, became a born-again Christian, right? Yeah, at the t- when he, after he was uh, fleeing the lion that he finally got off of him, he had a vision of seeing Jesus on the trail, and mm-hmm. uh, he's become a, an inspirational speaker after that attack. This does not, uh, his religion does not include forgiving the lion. He talks about, uh, if you ever find that one-eyed lion, I'd like the, the, the pelt, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, uh, Let's just say that one-eyed lion makes a brief appearance yeah. at the end of the book. Yep. Okay. Very, very good. Very good. Uh, I want to ask you, we do have a, a call coming in, um, but you, you write, Boulder was a town that loved its own version of nature with such passion that its, its embrace ultimately altered the natural world. What, what do you mean by that? Well, so the attitude that 
people moving to Boulder had, and I think it's common in many beautiful, quote, natural areas, is uh, to move into a beautiful mountain backdrop, plant a garden, uh, put out bird seed, and look at all the wonderful animals and feel like I'm I'm just a spectator and I'm here to leave nature alone. And that was really the, the attitude of many Boulderites. Let's leave the lions alone. And the main argument I'm making in the book, I don't claim there's an easy answer, but this attitude of let's just leave them alone, it's unrealistic. You can't move to a place like Boulder or Logan and leave the animals alone. Your living there changes their behavior by uh, keeping pets that, you know, house cats that are killing birds or your dog that you leave out back that may become prey to a mountain lion, the, the garbage that you put out that may attract a black bear, the, the bird seed that you put out that certainly attracts birds and may also attract black bears. All of those things that you're doing, you're sending signals to those animals of, hey, come on in, or so, some things you're doing may be saying, hey, go away. But we're kidding ourselves to think that we're leaving them alone. And more than that, a place like Logan or like Boulder, look look at this urban forest you've got here, right? This is a very lush community. This is not a natural forest here in Logan. First of all, these trees wouldn't be here if it weren't for irrigation. And secondly, I'm no expert on Logan's vegetation, but I would bet you that a, a great number of these trees out here are not native to this area. We have changed the landscape. So... So it's what I'm saying is we should accept the fact that we can't leave it alone. The question is, what do we want it to be? And how do we manage ourselves and manage the landscape? Maybe to make it more natural, but that's going to take intervention. We can't leave it alone and expect it to be natural. Mm-hmm. Let's go to uh, Barbara in, I believe, North Logan. Uh, Barbara, welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, enjoyed your book. I have a question for you sure. about um, looking at policy. I know we do a lot of environmental education and we teach kids about the ecology and the interrelationships and, and very critical um, education. But the, city, the people who are making the decisions in the policy and um, city planners, landscapers who help you make choices with plants, good or bad, on the landscaping for new homes, new developments, and the kinds of guidelines and standards um, that we want to see cities have. How do you work with them? And what are some of your recommendations for um, working with some of these people that are in major decision-making positions to improve or work with a challenging, um, a challenge like you have with, with lions and with other animals? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there are so many people involved in in these decisions in terms of where new housing developments will go. Are you putting those housing developments in wildlife corridors, which means you're more you're you're going to cause trouble for the wildlife and maybe have them come into to urban areas. What you plant in your garden may be attracting deer. You know, uh, regulation. That's one way. Not all communities like having uh, uh, land use decisions um, uh, constrained by town ordinances and that sort of thing, but that's certainly one option, saying that you, you can't put a housing development someplace where where the deer go through or the elk go through. But I think more important, what Boulder has tried, and I don't claim it's a perfect solution, is trying to regulate human behavior, you know, making sure that it is illegal to feed the deer at the very least. Um, you know, people who feed deer often do it because they love the deer, but I would argue ultimately it's not in the deer's best interest and it's not in the lion's best interest. So, Making it illegal to to feed wildlife intentionally, uh, maybe encouraging people not to plant things that are going to attract wildlife, um, 
and having policies of um, uh, wildlife officers, even police officers being educated to do things to keep the animals away. In Boulder, we've got now, if a lion shows up in town, the first thing that's done, if it's on the edge of town, is a ranger will go out and shoot it with rubber buckshot to scare it off and to give it uh, a painful experience so hopefully it won't come back in. But these are really tricky questions involving lots of people, and I think it starts with a community conversation. Mm-hmm. Thanks, and Barbara. you set up those community conversations? <laughs> the, the tough one, yeah. That's, Thank you. Yeah, well, maybe this will start it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Barbara. Thanks Appreciate that. Much. The book is The Beast in the Garden, and it's the story of the return of mountain lions to Boulder, Colorado uh, in the uh, 80s and 90s culminating in the death of a young man and uh, changing some attitudes about uh, Boulderites uh, toward these uh, what at first were uh, welcomed as, uh, I think, an example of, hey, we're existing, we're coexisting with, with wild. And uh, so then that, that, that changed some attitudes. And uh, David Barron is with us, of course, for the hour. So you talked about some of the measures now taken in Boulder, scare off the, the mountain lions with rubber bullets and, and such. What are some of the other measures now taken? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's encouraged that people who live particularly on the edge of open space keep their dogs um, in lion-proof pens. Um, and I, I would say that's good advice around here. You know, if you live particularly on the edge of town or in a rural subdivision and you love your dog and uh, you've got lions around, you might want to consider having a pen that's not just fenced on the sides but actually has a sturdy fence on top because lions can jump an 8-, 10-foot fence and come in for for a dog. Um, Some people have done that, not nearly as many as should. Um, uh, Again, making sure that we're not attracting the deer in. I think there's just uh, there's a lot more active management on the part of the city of Boulder and the Division of Wildlife keeping an eye out for the the individual lion that maybe have maybe has crossed that line into what could mm-hmm. be dangerous behavior. I'm interested to uh, to know whether you think uh, attitudes have changed in some of these uh, towns since the book came out. It's been you know about ten years. Right. And, uh, your central thesis is we we have by our very presence altered the landscape. We have to. Factor that in as we as we manage this. Do you, do you think these principles are coming into play? I think so. Uh, it's you know I don't claim there are easy answers, and it really does begin with a public discussion, in which Barbara was talking about. And Boulder, luckily, has had that conversation and is still having that conversation. Um, the latest we're trying to come up in Boulder with a lion and bear policy, an urban lion and bear policy. And one of the things that's on the table. This is more about bears than lions. Is uh, is requiring people to have bear-proof garbage cans because for bears, garbage is a huge issue. And it's going to cost everyone a little bit more to um, to have these garbage cans. And uh, some communities have done it. Aspen now requires them. I think Lake Tahoe requires them. I think Boulder eventually will require them, but we're not there yet. Um, so I, I, I actually... I. I like to think that my book has been part of provoking that conversation. The, in fact, one of the central themes of the book, the, the two scientists we talked about earlier, Jim and Michael, who were studying human-lion interaction, what they really wanted to do was to put radio collars on the lions, to, to actually track them, to figure out where are these lions going? How often are they coming into town? How are they behaving around homes? Is it one troubled, one troublesome lion that's coming in all the time, or is it ten? They were trying to get that study off the ground. They weren't allowed to. Uh, Four or five years ago, 
that very study, not with them, but by the Division of Wildlife in Colorado, just got off the ground. It's called the, the Front Range Lion Study. There are now more than 60 mountain lions along the Front Range outside Boulder that have been fitted with GPS collars. <laughs> the lions now will essentially email their location to the scientists seven times a day. And it's great. There, now we can really get a handle on what's going on. And I think that's the main thing we need is more research to figure out, do these aversive conditioning techniques, does, does shooting a lion with rubber buckshot actually keep it from coming back? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a lion starts eating dogs, does it get used to eating dogs and then it stops eating deer? We really don't know. So that's the first thing we need is this, is this research. And again, if I can pat myself on the back, I think that the book actually did prompt that that research study and I, that's great but we need we really need more information we just have a couple minutes left i assume more and more towns are going to have to have this discussion right? oh but absolutely this, this wildland urban interface the fact that we're protecting predators and we're sprawling out into these wildlands this is increasing oh absolutely you know it, we used to be not that long ago a largely rural nation most the vast majority of Americans lived in rural areas. We are now largely an urban nation. So in back, you know, 50, 100, 200 years ago, most Americans lived in small towns and on farms and there was hunting going on and and the so there was plenty of hunting going on in rural areas. The wildlife were pretty much reserved, certainly the predators to distant natural areas. The cities were way far away, and you had this vast buffer between the two that was rural America. Now you've got urban America that sprawled outward. Small towns have turned into suburbs, and then ranches and farms have been turned into open space. So you now have urban and suburban America coming right up against these vast kind of wild areas where the where the the deer and the lions live. And so we've, in, in essence, we've recreated the American frontier. We have now gone back to a time where uh, kind of the urban life meets the wild life. And that's happening everywhere. And even in areas where you don't have uh, cougars, you've got bears, you've got deer, you've got foxes, you've got coyotes. So it's really not just lions. The same thing's happening with all these species. And as your town or area grapples with this, so The Beast in the Garden is a good book to read to uh, to uh, get a, an idea of some of these, the breadth of some of these issues. The Beast in the Garden is the book. David Byrne, a pleasure. Thanks. Tom, thank you so much. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.